hi, this is the Taylor. <laughs> I just can't. <laughs> I'm going to grow up now. Hi, this is Taylor Stevens, New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of Kick-Ass International Thrillers. And this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And I'm almost speechless because I'm I'm tempted to talk about whether or not we're going to include what happened immediately before the intro, and I think we are. So if you hear something unusual right before the intro, that's what I'm talking about now. It's just too funny to leave out. But yes, this is The Taylor Stevens Show, and we are going to talk about writing today. But first, we have a story from the farm. Not a very long story. It's not a very big story. I, um, you know, I've talked before about. I don't know. Did I tell it? I told, talked about the the tree falling on the roof, right? Yes, and, and we've, we've talked about the rain and how difficult it's been for you to get anything done because of of the never ending rain that's been happening in in your neck of Texas. Which you know, just randomly, the sky opened up again today, like just right on top of me, like. Ten minutes away, there was nothing, and I know because I called someone to say, "Hey, is it raining there?" And they, it wasn't. But I, we caught a break, right? We we caught a break, and finally the roofing stuff got done. And the day that it happened, I, the you occasionally, I mean, I know Steve does a really good job of cutting this out, but occasionally on this podcast you hear my dog barking. She's this little tiny thing; she's about six pounds, and she thinks she's such a badass. Anyway, this little thing. So she's such a mild little scary cat. But when that, when she hears something out there, she's going to, she's just turns into like, I'm going to kill it. Right. So the roofers get going and they're up there thumping away on the roof, banging and it's going on for a while. And all day long, that dog is convinced that somebody is at the front door. And she, whoever it is, she's going to kill him. And it goes on all day long. And finally, I'm just like, I'm going to wrap her up in a blanket and stick her on a bed <laughs> and convince her. <laughs> Make a little thunder, a little thunder security blanket for her. And I finally got her to be quiet. But that was an adventure. But my roof is done. I'm very excited about that. One less thing that I have to deal with. And I was telling Steve the other day about, all the crazy, insane number of things that had all gone down at the same time because there was the roof. Uh, there was dealing with exterior work. They found termites. My car broke down. I had to get it fixed. And I don't even remember what else there was, but there was like this laundry list of things that all just went boom right at the same time. And then I got them all done <laughs> right around the same time. So I was like, okay, back to writing. Here we go. You know, I think it was actually like, Right around two weeks ago when we talked and I, I said, how's everything going? And then you just let loose with the tsunami of things that aren't getting done. <laughs> it's like I've got but all I this stuff laughing. on my list and none of it's getting done because of this crazy weather. And I was laughing. I yes, wasn't you like, were. Yes, you were. Who, who feels sorry for me? Just to be real clear about that. No, but it was it just was like, not that. You know, you it, it was more like, yes, are you kidding me? It's still happening. And it was like, you can't make this up. 
But anyway, it's finally starting to ease off. So anyway, that's keep your fingers crossed. My yeah, almost everything that. that was on that list of woe from two weeks ago has been accomplished. So you're feeling pretty good. Rocking and rolling. <laughs> <laughs> Are you actually riding yeah, again? I'm feeling my oats. Yes, I am. I, I've been really struggling. Uh, there was this one particular segment that it's taken me like three weeks to get through a page, but I think I finally got it well enough that I could move on. And there's a lot of rough material that I'd already written uh, in the in the rest of this segment, but I couldn't get to it until I sort of had the flow going. So once I finally got that flow, now I'm on to it's sort of starting to come together a little bit faster, but man, it's frustrating. I, I I spent a good deal of this time hating myself because I just feel completely worthless and I'm not going to turn this into a poor me uh, podcast, but it, it, it really sucks when the one thing that you are supposed to be good at, you seem to not be able to do. And uh, yeah, but I'm writing. Yay. One thing that you've been good at recently has been answering questions. And we have a lot of different ways in which people can ask you questions or ask the show questions. Sometimes people will email you. Sometimes people will email me. Um, sometimes people will leave questions at the Facebook group. And every so often we get a comment on the website. And this, this particular question came in as a question on the website. So I'm a I'm thankful because whenever I go in there and check, I get really tired of seeing all the all the spam comments. There are all these robots out there that just ping you with spam comments and then you just have to delete them and mark them as spam looking through for actual comments or questions. And I was so excited to see this question today. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Not the act of receiving questions, but the actual question which related to a podcast from a few weeks ago where we were talking about story weight. I'm very excited for this question too, because when anyone, when our listeners write in and ask, it, it helps me know, how do I help you? Otherwise I'm just sort of, I don't know, vomiting ideas <laughs> into the air and hoping they're helpful. So this question is from NZ Lowe, who is a longtime listener. We've had material from her on the show before, and I'm just super excited that you're still listening, NZ. And here we go. It is a follow-up question on story weight with respect to red herrings and misdirection in mysteries. So a common way to force the misdirection is with extra words and descriptions, but many times it can fall flat and feel unsatisfying to the reader. I would be interested in your take on the do and the don't of red herrings in a genre where the reader is expecting them, but also wants to feel it was done well. And how can you balance the story weight for a character who isn't the real villain or a critical clue without tipping your hand too soon? All right, before you get into it, I want to I talk a little bit about just the idea of red herrings, and I'm going to, rather than use books, which it's, it's unusual to have a large group of people that might have watched or, or read the same book, I'm going to use TV movies. And in particular, you may have never watched any of these, Taylor, but Julie and I love these, Hallmark Mysteries. And I've so never seen them. in every single Hallmark mystery, they're, they're two hours, and you take out the commercials, so it's like an hour and 40 minutes of content. And they start layering in the red herrings right from the beginning. And as a viewer, you have to sift through them. It's like, okay, this clue came too early 
in the show for it to be a valuable clue. And you start guessing at what's an actual clue and what's a red herring based on the timing when it happens in the show. I'm curious if that, if anyone else, I know that we have listeners who watch Hallmark Mysteries. I'm, I'm curious if anyone else uses that as a, as a metric to try and solve the crime. That's interesting. But it's, I mean, the same thing would happen in a book. It's, it's like you, you see things, and this is sort of what MZ is getting to. There's, there's information in there, and it's like, wow, if that's the actual clue, then the book is going to be over by page 47, and I, I can feel it in my hand. There are 300 pages here. Right. So, okay, so I'm looking at this from, first of all, I don't write mysteries per se, but I do write some of the stories that I have do have that mystery element of who done it. Like for the information is had that the mask had that, right? So how to approach it really as with so much else is depends, right? Because in for example, in the mask. Okay, spoiler alert. If you've not read this book, you probably maybe don't want to continue from here. But I might not ruin it too much. In in the mask, there's more than one person. Uh, there's of all the things that are happening, it's not all the result of only one quote unquote bad guy. But in the mask, also, we get the point of view of one of the people. We just don't know what role they have to play. So how you're writing the story is going to influence the type of weight and the type of red herrings you're going to throw. So if you're writing a mystery in which you only have the protagonist's point of view, this is going to be different than if you're also getting the bad person's point of view. Now, in the case of I can use uh, C.A. Newsom's book, um, I think it's A Shot in the Bark, but I'm not. No, I don't remember which one it is. Sorry, but we get the protag the, the bad person's point of view, but we don't actually know who they are. We don't know if they're male or female, and so that is another way that could influence how much weight you're giving to a story is when we're actually in the bad person's head. So we're getting glimpses of them, but we don't actually know. We don't have a name. We don't, we don't know anything about them. We are just sort of getting glimpses of their, their insight, right? That can also weight how red hearings are done. So it's, it's hard to give a very specific answer because there's so much, it depends, but what Steve just did here with using movies or film as an example, I think is possibly a really good way to approach this because I just finished watching Mayor of Easttown. And that's something that probably at least 50% of our listeners will have seen. And it is a, it's a mystery, really, you know, murder mystery with other elements that come up into play. And if I use that, as sort of a, a marker guidepost for answering this, because that story was done so well. And it had a tremendous number of very heavy red herrings continuously all throughout. And you're like, 
almost seven hours in before you start to figure out, okay, that was a red hair, that, that's not it. And when I'm watching it, because I've seen enough movies and, and or maybe it's just a storytelling, I've been telling stories for a while now, I, that storytelling feel of it, it's not necessarily going to be the first or the the one, the most obvious or whatever. You're like, okay, that, that can't be it. But what I found really played into making the red herrings in that story feel full and satisfying was that they were rich characterizations. The, the, the thing that made that miniseries what it was, was, was how fully developed and intertwined the characters' lives were. It's, it's almost like the characterization and getting into who they were and how their lives all uh, interacted with each other and their histories and personalities and conflicts and whatnot was as much, if not more, a part of that story than the search for who did this murder. And so I think when you have a story that actually requires the red herrings, and really when you think about it, most stories do, even if they're not mysteries, because that's part of the conflict is learning and understanding and figuring things out for the, for the characters as they go. It is how the, the, the way that you keep those feeling alive and, and not feeling flat or unsatisfying, I think would be in the quality of character building that goes along with them. So you, you have this expectation that there's going to be a red herring. And if you're just like waving it in the reader's face like a stinky fish, then it, it, it's like, okay, fine. Yeah, that's your point. Even if the reader knows that you're throwing red, waving red herrings at them, if those misdirections are well-crafted and given the full texture of, of, of life, even if they, you know that they're red herring, you get invested in the characters themselves and it doesn't come across as feeling, you know, flat, unsatisfying, formulaic or whatever. It's, it's the drawing of it, the depth of it that can turn formula or paint by the numbers expectation into something completely rich and alive. Slight side note, topical, but not, not on the subject of red herrings, on the subject of characterization. Last night, I watched, for the first time, the movie Mrs. Mr. Right, which is a romantic comedy slash, slash a thriller slash I don't know what with Anna Kendrick and Sam Worthington. And it is a movie that got, I think, heavily panned when it came out in 2015. And I know this because I looked it up because I was like, oh, I, I got to know more about this movie. It's just freaking and genius. Can I, yeah. Can I just say that I, I remember watching that and going, oh my gosh, I love this movie like more than anything else I'd watched that year. 
Right. Okay. That was, I, I, I had jaw dropping moments watching this movie and it was not the story. Okay. This is a story that could be told in 30 seconds. The actual plot line could be told in 30 seconds. Been there, done that slight, maybe tiny, tiny little twist on a very overdone story. What made the movie what it was, was the dialogue, the characters, the characters, the characters, the characters, the character interaction, the dialogue, the dialogue, the characters. It was genius. And it, even though it's not topical to the issue of red herrings, it is topical to characterization and how you can take something that the same story done differently would have been flat and unsatisfying and ho-hum, I've seen it a million times before. And what brought this particular movie to life was the people, the characters, and the way that they treated each other and the world and the dialogue they used to interact with each other, right? So taking that same concept of characterization and transferring it over into the idea of red herrings, even the most obvious, boring, in-your-face, expected red herrings can be given completely new life through the characters and the way those characters are drawn. And leave your readers feeling like they've just come away from something spectacular, even though it really was just the same old story done for the thousandth time. It just didn't feel like that because of the characters that it's happening to. And, you know, every story is unique to the author, to the genre, to the, to so many elements, the voice that you can't say, oh, well, do it this way. But if you understand the concept behind that, you yourself have the magic and the power to do it. So that's sort of like the the side of it that has to do with flat and unsatisfying when it comes to expected red herrings and wanting it to feel done well. It's in the characterization. It's in how the characters are drawn. It's in the whatever particularly unique circumstances or unique interactions those characters have with each other. In other words, your red herring cannot be a throwaway character, no matter how how short their time on the page or how little weight they carry in the story. They, they have to be just as real and just as important as everything else in terms of depth. So if you have a, a story where you know, you, the author know that this character is a red herring, your tendency might be not to invest as much time or care into the crafting because you're just trying to get through it so you can get on to what really matters. And that right there is going to make the character feel, blech, you know, that the whole thing is going to just feel like, yeah, I knew it. I saw that a million miles away, right? Which apparently in, in mysteries, there's this fine line between letting the reader, you don't want the reader to feel that they're so much smarter than you, but you don't want them to feel dumb either. Like, I think like that's sort of the sense I get from reading reviews. Like, I saw this coming a mile away is going to be one side of this tandem. And the other is I just couldn't follow it. The author was just showing off or whatever. Right. So you're, tra- you're walking this fine line. Right. 
and and it's in the characterization, I think, that the answer is found. But then that leads to the flip side of that equation, which is story weight, right? Which is how do you balance that weight for a character? And this is the actual question I'm reading that. How do you balance the story weight for a character who isn't the real villain or too critical of a clue without tipping your hand too soon? And I don't know the answer to that because it's so situational. It It is one of those things that it's almost like you, you've seen those like shows or experiments where they'll have, they'll blindfold a person and have them put their hand into a glove and the glove is sort of attached to a box and they have to f- sort of feel what it is. And then based on how they're feeling the thing sort of tell what the object is that they're feeling, or sometimes they'll do it where they're blindfolded and there is no glove and there'll be like a tarantula or something inside that box. Right. And the audience can see it, but the person who's blindfolded can't, that is what it's like. Sometimes when you're writing, you're the author and you're blindfolded and you've got your hand in that box and you're feeling around for these various components of the story and you just have to do it by touch by feel of how it all fits together so maybe building off that analogy you are blindfolded and you've been handed a puzzle puzzle pieces and you've got to sort of feel the pieces and figure out how they fit together in this three-dimensional sphere right i don't know how you balance the story weight for a character who isn't the real villain or isn't much of a critical clue without tipping your hand too soon, except me personally, I would say you, you hide, how how do you, how do you become invisible in a crowd? You become part of the crowd, right? So as an author, if you're treating these characters differently in how you write them, well, you're tipping your hand right there. If you are, I guess this is easier for organic writers because they don't even know who the bad guy is or whatever half the time until they're through, you know, most of the way through the story. But for plotters, you're going to know. And you, I would say my goal, if this was my challenge, my goal would be crafting every character with the same amount of care and effort because if you if you do it too little then it's obvious if you if it's just some character that the the main character sees in passing and and almost never even came up in the story and they are the one your readers are just going to be mad at you because you didn't give them enough clues so it's this it's this fine tight walk or tight fine you're walking this narrow thread and piecing these puzzle pieces together by feel to figure out what ways and and where it belongs. And it's very personal and very situational to you and the story and your writing style and everything else. I would, if I was in that situation, it's also very important. I believe that we understand the point of view character in their search. So you could have the, your red herring, or your actual villain or however you want to do it right up front. You could, you could put a big sign in front of their head that says not the villain, or you could put a sign in front of the other one that says 
I'm guilty. And it wouldn't matter to the story is that the main character didn't figure it out or eliminated the wrong person and later came back to them. As long as we understand their reasons for doing it, like we we understand what they're getting at and why. And even if the reader figures it out, if it's very clear through the main character's thinking process of why they excluded that, and it's very clear that they're not stupid for excluding that, then you can get away with that. It's, it's this balance between the depth, which is fully creating these characters so that they feel real, but not spending so much time fully creating a character that doesn't matter without a reason. So in using the example of Mayor of Easttown, we get thrown lots of red herrings, but every single one of them, there is a reason why they exist in this story. They are connected to each other in some way. And the the threads all weave in and out. So even though you've been handed all these red herrings, you never feel like they're overdone because we're invested in the characters. You never feel that they're underdone because we're invested in the characters. And it doesn't Really, even in the cases where it does tip its hands, it doesn't matter because we're invested in the characters. The one thing we don't get through movie telling is our own characters, our point of view characters' thoughts. That is the one thing that books allow us to do that the visual medium does not. Now, Kate Winslet is a fantastic actress and she does so there's so much expressed on her face and in her body language and she doesn't even really talk a lot like a lot of times in movies that's how characters communicate what's going on inside of them is through what they're telling other people she didn't even do that she just was really good in all the other ways of of working with the material in books you have the ability to get inside a character's head and if you don't, when you have that opportunity, that's going to throw your story weight. That's going to throw your characterization. So that's going to feel flat and unsatisfying. So making sure that we understand why your lead character includes someone as a suspect or has eliminated someone as a suspect, whether that elimination was good or bad. By making it real and getting us close inside their heads that we understand why, those are mitigating factors that help avoid those issues. They're not going to solve them completely because I don't know what your particular situation is, but but they're tools that you can use to perhaps solve them completely in your particular situation based on how you use them. All right. And I think that answers uh, the question from MZ Lowe in a very informative way. And, and I, I, this is way off topic, but I want to get back to the movie of Mr. Wright, and it, it kind of ties in just to the career of a writer. This was a movie that Taylor really liked. It was a movie that I really liked. It's a movie that 88% of people on Google seem to like, and it was panned at the panned by critics and... 
total box office was roughly 10% of the budget for the film. So Ouch. it was a, a roaring disaster by most metrics. But over the course of this was, I think it was released in 2016. So over the course of the last five years, it's been available digitally. It's, it's available on Netflix now. It's, you know, I'm sure it's been on HBO, some of these other things. And my guess would be that over the course of that time, it's the movie has become profitable. But it's just interesting how something that two people who haven't talked about the movie before really enjoyed was so disliked by so many other people and how the the big reviewers who really have the opportunity to gin up interest in a film, if they don't like something, it just doesn't work. And it's one of the cool things about, at least to me, to the democratization of book reviews for through various online platforms, where wherever you buy your book, if you like the book, you can write a positive review. And the more positive reviews you are, the higher the ranking goes. The more positive reviews there are, the higher the ranking goes. The more people who see the book, it actually you actually have uh, a, a, the opportunity to influence sales of the book over time. And it's it's kind of a cool thing that's happened over the course of the last 10 years that we're all aware of. But every so often you see something like this, where uh, this movie did $34,000. It's on its opening weekend. Ouch. Yeah. No, I'm sorry, $25,000, and it did $36,000 in the United States in total. Oh, my God. Well, I have thoughts on that. Fire away. One is, well, one is, I posted similar on the Facebook, my Facebook group saying something along the lines of, you know, this movie is everything I wish I could do in book form. You know, on the surface, it's very cheesy, but when you start looking, looking deeper than that, here's what you get. And I sort of outlined it. And so far, everybody who's responded on that is like, oh, my God, that's one of my favorite movies. Oh, my God, I love that movie. Oh, that movie was awesome. So of the people who've responded to me, and granted, maybe people who hate it are just being polite, and which would be polite to just not say anything, and that's how it's supposed to work. So I can't say that it's really a good uh, meter of you know popularity, but clearly quite a few people who saw that post are responding because they loved the movie. So that's one aspect of it. The other is the movie does not fit neatly into any categories. It's too, it's too violent for a romantic company comedy. It's too dark for a romantic comedy. It's too cheesy and lighthearted to be a thriller. And if I, when I saw the, the preview that was put on it, I was like, eh, I don't know, maybe I'll watch it. It, I'd, I'd like to watch something light, so okay, fine. I would never have gone to see it in a movie based on what I saw in the the, the trailer. It just didn't, it, it did not, could not even possibly convey what it was. And it's a, it's a marketing nightmare. How do you market something that doesn't neatly fit and tick all the boxes? And that same problem exists in the book world, where anything that's too far outside the box or that can't be neatly defined is almost impossible to market. And then when you do try and market to a particular audience, that audience is disappointed because yeah, that's not what I came into it expecting. So um, maybe not the best example in terms of 
hey, this is what you should do if you want to write a popular book, but definitely a fantastic example for characterization (laughs) and not letting things fall flat. (laughs) All right. So that is it. We're, We're back to talking about writing again this week and happy to be doing it. So thank you, Taylor. Thank you guys for listening. We will be back again next Tuesday. And thank you, MZ, for sending in these fantastic questions. If I missed the mark and didn't really answer them in the direction that you were hoping for, like I went off on a tangent in another direction, please, by all means, feel free to come back and clarify. I'm happy to keep discussing the subject and maybe coming up with better answers or better solutions. And if all any of you, you other listeners out there have had questions about this topic, any other topics, by all means, please send your questions in. I'll do my best to tackle them. You're also still welcome to send in material that you'd like me to look over and possibly do an online edit for. Um, it, that's all still out there. And the more you do that, the more I'm able to give you what you need. So thanks for being here and we will see you next week. <laughs>